Life can be stressful, even under normal circumstances. 2020 has challenged even the most difficult times of life. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That's Headspace. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research and can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Go to headspace.com slash C-suite for a free one-month trial. Headspace.com slash C-suite. It's an exciting story. It's a dramatic story. And you know this person very well if you live in the States because you see her on television all the time. And she is an inspiration. So all of you who are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, this is your show because our job is to inspire you to keep going, especially if you're stuck in the mud right now, right now which all entrepreneurs get stuck in. Any comments, Kim? Well, this is going to be a very inspirational show, and especially, too, for women out there. If uh, you're thinking about starting a business or you have a business, this uh, our guest is a fabulous role model for women in the world of business as well as just a role model for women, period. And um, I'm, I just, I'm loving her story. The more I find out about her, the more I love uh, somebody that started from nothing, really, and built up a multi, multi, multi-million dollar business. It's a very exciting story. So let's get started. So our guest today is Angie Hicks. She's a co-founder and current CMO of Angie's List. You see her on television. If you're in America, you see her on television on time. And she is an inspiration to anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur. And the topic today is finding a need and providing a solution. But most importantly, for those who have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and the Cash Flow Quadrant, many entrepreneurs go from employee to S to small entrepreneur. Very few make the transition from S to B, which is big entrepreneur, 500 employees or more. So for those of you who are stuck in the S, you know, S stands for struggle. Anyway, if you're stuck there, please listen up. So welcome to the program, Angie. Welcome, Angie. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Would you tell us a story, I mean, how you got started and... Yeah, because I, I think most people think of Angie's List who know of Angie's List. It's an online and it's an internet company, but you didn't start there. We did not. We did not. So Angie's List has been around um, over 20 years. So uh, Bill Osterley, my co-founder, and I started it uh, in 1995. It was actually right when I graduated from college. Bill and I met while I was in college. I was his intern Uh, and uh, he was struggling to find good home improvement contractors, and we really thought there should be a better way for consumers to get reliable information about the people they're hiring to do work around their home. So you're fresh out of college, and you're an overnight success. Is that correct? (laughs) (laughs) There was no pain or gain in the whole thing. There's no pain, right? Exactly. Like, here we are. (laughs) You just one day woke up, I have have an idea, (laughs) and that was it. The money poured in. Is that correct? Maybe not quite so rosy <laughs> as that might appear. <laughs> but, but it's amazing how many people think that's the way it works. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're yeah, I think a lot of times people, you know, they hear, the, they hear the stories and they don't really hear the stories of kind of what it's like in the early days of starting a business. Because it's, it's hard. It's lonely. You know, there are times when, uh, when it's not going to – where you're certain it's not going to work. And, 
you know, I've always been a firm believer that, uh, you know, perseverance is probably one of the, the biggest nece- necessary uh, traits of an entrepreneur because there will be times that you think we can't, you know, this isn't going to go, I can't do this any longer. Um, and oftentimes that happens right before uh, you get a little break. Right. And you actually started knocking on doors, right? You started door to door. I did. I did. So, you know, I was a very, you know, quiet, shy uh, uh, 22-year-old that, uh, and we did not have a marketing plan. Uh, we were actually, we, we, we uh, uh, copied Angie's List off of a little company that had been around since the early 70s in Indianapolis called Unified Neighbors. And they'd never expanded outside of Indianapolis. And it was a, you know, it was a good little, little business. And Bill used that to renovate a house in Indiana. And uh, they built their entire membership base off of going door to door. But that was in the 70s when door to door was probably a lot more welcoming than in the mid 90s. Um, you know, Did I, you get a f- uh, few I, rejections? Quite a few. Quite a few. I, I, I look back on it now as my character building experience more than my sales experience. But, uh, you know, we quickly realized that that probably wasn't how we were going to be able to scale this business. I always laugh because, Angie, I have this friend of mine, you know, he's a Ph.D., which stands for Poor, Helpless, and Desperate. And I asked him one day, I said, what would happen if you lost your job? He says, oh, I'll just start a business. I went, what? Yeah. What? I mean, this guy has no idea. You know, so, yeah. the, you know, congratulations from going from startup to small business to big business to world power. So what are, as you say, it was character building. Would you mind sharing events or things or times where you came up against the wall you say that's it i'm not gonna oh, do this sure. yeah absolutely i mean you know i was you know so we you know if we roll back the clock back to, to 1995 I and mean, i was working by myself bill uh, bill had a full-time job that uh, that he did so this was this was my gig uh and you know and so i was living in a city i didn't know because i was from indiana i moved to ohio uh working by myself and I'd spend, you know, during the day I would, you know, I would take calls. You know, it was pre-internet days. I'd take calls from members looking for different types of home improvement experts. And then in the evening I'd go out and sell memberships. I literally would measure my sales like, you know, one membership or two memberships a day would would be a good day. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, kind of get up and do that over and over again. So without getting, you know, without getting like, where are we going at $19 a year or whatever it was we were charging back then? That was going to take a long time before we actually (laughs) had any traction at that base. Did you eat eat at McDonald's a lot? (laughs) (laughs) I did. I lived in a little tiny studio apartment uh, that that I think I paid like $200 a month for back then. Uh, And, uh, and, you know, everything was tiny in it and, and it was, it was, it was not the most desirable place in the world. (laughs) So, so Angie's list literally was a list that you wrote out and you had, you took the calls yourself. So you said sometimes you, you, and one of the things we talk about this uh, makes a successful big business is being able to scale scalability, being able to grow it. So what was the turning point that took you from on the, on the phone to your next step? Sure. So it was probably in the late 90s. So we, we had opened, as we were progressing kind of those first few years, we opened a market a year. Uh, so we expanded to Charlotte and, uh, and Cleveland, and, and, and we got four or five cities open. And then we realized that, um, that we were, in order to be able to kind of, we actually had this kind of decision point. You know, the question became like it's very hard to scale the way we're scaling because we were actually opening cities, opening opening offices in every city. 
because we thought kind of understanding local required that you actually were part of the community, that you actually sat in there and knew that the that the uh, that the dry cleaner sat behind the grocery store at the corner of whatever and whatever, that you actually had to have that kind of context. But but we knew being able to scale from uh, a data perspective and then to be able to put a website up, we were going to have to centralize that data. And it was like, okay, how do we do that? Uh, and so we opted to roll everything centrally uh, into our central call center. And I think I'm trying to think back what we, we literally gave ourselves, I don't know, maybe 30 or 60 days to kind of prove that we could, that we could do that centrally uh, before we were going to revert on that. Uh, and, and uh, and it was it was challenging. It was challenging for sure. But but then that allowed us to to be able to put a website up and and really uh, you know see some uh, see our growth start to scale. Well, uh, let me ask you this: How much was the membership for the uh, knocking the door you knocked on? I think it was nineteen dollars a year. And, and, we were nineteen. And you you, you funded yourself starting with nineteen dollars per member. Yeah. Was that the only source of revenue? So we had revenue. We have two streams of revenue. Then and today have two streams of revenue. So there was the membership revenue. Uh, and then companies who were highly rated by the consumers could offer discount coupons to the members. Uh, and so back in that, in those days, in the early days, it was actually through our, our newsletter that we mailed. They would have a coupon ad in our newsletter. But they had to remain, maintain their good ratings in order to be eligible to advertise. And then did you have to hire employees? I mean, you know, to go from Ohio to Charlotte, it's quite a quite a knock on the door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we sure did. So uh, we actually, after a year in, ended up acquiring Unified Neighbors, which was the business we patterned Angie's List after in, in uh, Indianapolis. And so literally I was like stuck kind of, I have to hire people to take the phone calls because I was actually driving back and forth and spending half my week in each city. Uh, so I put, you know, were, were a little you ad out the in doors? Our, by that point, luckily, we had decided that knocking on the doors was not the right path. So we had actually started doing some advertising. So we were advertising in the local uh, – Columbus was full of great local newspapers, weekly newspapers. So we, were, we had a little ad that we ran in those that got our phone ringing, and it said, tired of lousy service. Uh, and uh, and it was an ad that kind of stuck with us for a long time. And so all of a sudden our phones started ringing and our ones and twos a day sales turned into, you know, five and ten a day sale. So off of $19, and then how did you, how did you get revenue from a coupon? From coupon advertising. So I'd buy, you know, advertising in our newsletter, our print oh. newsletter that we would send out. Yeah. So if I was Robert's Plumbers, I would mm-hmm. advertise. And, you'd, and you were doing good work, you could advertise a discount to our members through oh, my that brain, magazine. My brain was hurting. So how do you do it on $19 <laughs> and expand to Charlotte? You know, that's... that's yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, we were, yeah, I mean, we were raising, you know, we were raising money as we went. But, I mean, we got to 1,000 members in Columbus within the first year. So that was 19000 a year? Yeah. <laughs> And you were paying when you were paying yourself. I was, I was. I did like to eat. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't earning much, but I was being paid. (laughs) So, what would you say to people? Because I think, as you say, the startup or that part is the make or break. What kept you going, and what advice would you have for somebody who is afraid of that period? Because you know, no matter how many times I start, if you start, you're thinking about starting a business. This is the point that throws either people don't start or they they get kicked in the teeth and come home, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, there's a couple of things. So one, you know, I like I I remind people like you know because I hear talk to people all the time. They're looking at starting at businesses at various stages of their life. 
you know, there was a little bit of kind of ignorance is bliss being 22 starting a business, right? I didn't know what I didn't know, uh, and I didn't have a lot to lose. I think you have to be realistic about how hard it's probably going to be uh, and make sure that you're prepared for that. I think secondly, when you're starting a business, it's really about the people you surround yourself with because, you know, there's, you know, in those days that it's not going well, having a really good support system uh, and smart people that can help you see the long-term strategy is going to be important because sometimes you can get so worn down by the day-to-day. I didn't sell a membership today. And you kind of forget the fact, like, well, what we're trying to do is X. You know, we're trying to get to here. You know, finding local service drives is hard in Columbus. It's the 50th largest city in the country. It's going to be harder in every city bigger than that. And, you know, we knew that we liked a recurring revenue business, uh, which we knew was going to scale and build upon itself. But it was going to take time. And you need people, you know, you need support folks around you that are going to remind you of that process. Otherwise, you can really get yourself rat holed on kind of the, the challenge or the failure of the day. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. We're talking to Angie Hicks. She's the co-founder of Angie's List, and she's talking about how it, what it takes to start, the rejection, the dark holes I'm sure people go, I went into at least, and Kim and I have gone into, but how we keep going. But there's another stage is how you go from small to big. Any comments, Kim? Well, I love this story, and Angie, thank you so much, because you're, you're touching on a lot of things that we talk about at Rich Dad, and one of the first things is when you're starting a business, the purpose of a business is to solve a problem. And you and Bill saw this problem of having good, reliable, local homeowner services that nobody else provided, and you went out and did that. That, along with you had a mentor in Bill, which, of course, mm-hmm. we talk about, too. So um, I'd like to just go a little bit more because you talked about, you know, knocking on the doors and going through these tough times. And was there ever a time where you really felt, I'm, I'm not doing it, I'm, I'm going to quit, this is it, I've had it, I'm giving up? Was that yesterday? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little pep talk you have in your head all the time, right? <laughs> when you're starting a business. So. Um, so yeah, I think one of the, you know, one of the stories and one of the moments I probably remember most is, you know, I I was having one of those, one of those weeks, days, whatever it was. Uh, and I called Bill up, uh, and I was like, you know, like, Hey, we need to, let's, let's get together and chat. And I, you know, to this day, I kind of, I commend him for being smart enough to know that he did not want to have that meeting in my little, uh, eight by 10 office. Uh, he suggested, Hey, let's meet at the coffee shop down the street. Um, and, you know, so we, so we meet down there and I was just kind of at my wits end and, you know, we sat down and I just started crying. I was just like, you know, and, and, and literally, you know, he, and so he started talking, you know, and kind of giving me that pep talk, uh, that I, that I needed. And at the end, he's like, I I think you probably had things you wanted to say. If you want to get together again, we can get together again. And all I could muster was, um, I'm not going to quit. Uh, and, 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 you know, and I, he likes to tell the story where he was like, great, why don't you get back to work then? I've done my job here, <laughs> you know, but it's like those moments where you just like, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't anything that was going to, you know, there, nothing really changed in kind of that process, but just knowing you're not alone in the process, yeah. I think is, is, is a big factor and knowing that someone's cheering for you. Um, because, you know, like, Works hard, uh, you know, and, and, and you need that support network. Two questions. What did you find that said, I'm not going to quit? Where did it come from? And second think, of all, what happened after that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, kind of 
where does that come from? I think that's just like I am I've just inherently in my personality an incredibly committed, loyal person. Uh, you know, so I think that's part of it. I, you know, like the thought of letting someone down, uh, you know, is, is kind of the worst thing. I'm kind of that. Yeah, that's for me, you know, and kind of, hey, you know, Bill and I were friends and the thought of letting him down or the people you know, that put the initial money in the business. I mean, that was that weighed heavy on me. And, and that was something I took very seriously. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think that plays a big role. I mean, you know, kind of what happened from there. I mean, you know, soon after that, we decided door to door wasn't for us <laughs> and that we were going to put some money behind actually doing some marketing. Uh, and, you know, and that, you know, kind of, you know, while, you know, while the days weren't fantastic after that, just the draft comparison for me just in general uh, was enough to kind of to bring some energy back into the process. And and so then, Angie. So this is all of this is, and again, I think people don't realize that you started all of this well before there was any internet. How did technology come into it? How did the internet come into it? Sure. So we um, so we got to uh, we put our website up in 1998, I guess it was. 99, maybe. And this is when we're, uh, you're, everybody's just experimenting with websites, yeah, right? Yeah, everyone is. You know, yeah. like we, we don't know what we're doing. We hired some college guys down right. the street. I think we paid them 1000 bucks to make this little website for us. Uh, and, you know, and for us, we knew that, you know, in, in our process, like, you know, the Internet wasn't going to define us, but we knew it was going to be an incredible accelerator and a way for consumers to be able to interact. I mean, think about it. Like, do you want to listen to me read reviews to you or would you like to read them yourself? <laughs> <laughs> might be a lovely conversation we have, but for most consumers, <laughs> they'd rather <laughs> just be able to read on their own. Um, so we put that we put that side up, and then was, you know, and then the internet bubble happened. The internet boom was in the process of happening there, and there were lots of people coming into our space. And the question became like, hey, you know, do we have the right model? Uh, so and were you, people were competing with you. At that point? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been like waves of competitors into the space over the years. Uh, and, you know, the question was like, okay, they're taking it from a different angle. You know, they are like free to consumers, companies, um, companies pay to be to be listed. And, and we were like, we kind of evaluated where we were and we liked our business model and we stuck with it at that time. But that could have been a deal breaker back then. You know, but what we realized was, well, you know, they were giving information to consumers for free. We were actually... You know, we we actually had an easier time with the service providers because we were actually having them pre-screened by the consumers. So selling them advertising after we were already delivering value to them was more of an upsell than a cold call. I understand you left for Harvard at that time. Is that correct? I did. So I, I left um, at the yeah beginning of 1999. And so, what was so the I took reason for that? Month, I took an 18-month leave to. Uh, to get my MBA, and at, at that point, we were you know we were at the point where the business was in four markets, and it was time to start you know building out a management team. And so, so the board had started a search for um, for a CEO. So why did why did uh, you think it was important to go to Harvard at this time? I think for me, when I look back on it, it, it was an important break for me. I think everyone mm-hmm. needs kind of a break from uh-huh. startup, okay. and it was an opportunity for me to step away, uh, you know, kind of learn a lot, but at the same point, kind of refresh. That's actually a pretty good idea because yeah. it, uh, it stimulates your mind and you expand. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I think back on it, like, so So Bill ended up joining the business at that time as CEO. So, you know, like, in many ways, it was, like, the perfect outcome. You know, it's like, hey, it's not, you know, it's like, 
my co-founder stepping in, you know, so it was a very comfortable transition. And, and I had been exposed to so many things at a young age that it was like, you know, you're drinking from the fire hose. You're like, manage people? I don't manage people. I mean, my, my resume before this was like employee of the month at Ryan's Steakhouse one summer, you know? <laughs> so how was the Harvard MBA for you? I mean, did you know sometimes more than your professors? Oh, <laughs> I, I was always learning. I was always learning. I mean, you know, for me, it was it was a great experience to really kind of take real world experience and apply it to other situations, other experiences, and and well, really that, kind of formulate just better thinking around uh, business ideas. Um, you know, but there were certainly times, you know, like you know, you know. You know, I think I, I remind myself sometimes of like, hey, managing people is a is a talent that always needs to be improved and learned upon, and and kind of what sounds great in strategy doesn't always execute perfectly exactly. when you're dealing with people. You know, it's like I remember being in a class one time, and you know, you know, the class was kind of ready to say, oh, we need to we need to cut expenses. Let's reduce our staff by ten percent. And I'm like, you know, have you fired someone before? Oh, <laughs> Amen, amen, amen. You haven't lived until you. Those are real things. Those are real things. Those are people. These are people. These are not just. This is not just the story you're writing. Right. You know. So being able to, you know, kind of marry those two together was a great experience. It's not a multiple guest test. Yeah. Once again, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Today we're talking to Angie Hicks, co-founder of the world-famous, or United States-famous Angie's List. And she's talking about what it takes to go from college kid to startup to growing up to an MBA program to learning. And now she is she has like three, you have three million people on Angie's List and mm-hmm. still a lot of competitors and a lot of uh, growth in there, right? That's right. Yeah. So this is this is my challenge. You know, when I was in my MBA program, I sat there, and I just revolted. You know, because I mean, I, I just didn't like it. You know, because this is not this is not real world. So, mm-hmm. how, did you ever run into that conflict inside of this? Is, this is theory, but not real world. Well, I think it's I think it's important to understand the theory so that you can kind of make sense of the real world. The real world's always going to make it messier, right? But being able to understand kind of, you know, the thinking and the logic behind different strategies is an important aspect and, you know, it's never going to look like it does in a textbook, but uh, but having that process and that uh, and that critical thinking capability is important to apply. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies though. It's called Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see that? Did you feel like oh, that yeah, sometimes? I that was where you were going, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just love that movie. Because, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I think I'm, in, I'm Rodney Dangerfield's alter ego. <laughs> and when he sat there and he says, no, that's not the way you do it. You have to grease the guy or something like this. <laughs> you know, I just cracked it up. And that's why that, I mean that's why it makes sense to me that for the you know a lot of times people just go right to MBA program with no real world experience, but you're out there in the real world building a business and you're actually being able to really evaluate the information as useful or not useful. Um, I, I think you probably did you probably did your classmates a big service too with your with your interactions. Yeah, and I and I encourage. I mean, I actually, you know, whenever people ask for advice about business school, I always encourage them to work for a few years because it's like you don't. 
Like, yeah. you, you come out of college, you're very book smart. Yes. You need to get the real world smarts. Uh, yeah, you take your GMAT, I encourage you, when you're fresh out of college, because you're going to be really good at the GMAT at that point. But then... <laughs> Well, and you talk Stay a lot. Business school for a few years down the road. Yeah, and because you, you talk, and this is what we we str- strongly believe in that. Oftentimes, you have to step into the unknown. You have to go places you've never been before, and that's mm-hmm. something that I think a lot of people are afraid of or scared to do. But that's part of your success is you learn from the failures, and you're not, you're willing to go where you haven't been before. Yeah, because yeah, people will ask, like, "Hey, what's your what's your biggest failure?" And I'm just like, you know, I. One last week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I, I fail every day. Like, yeah. we, I yeah. mean, that's like, that's how you learn. And, and those are the, the opportunities. You know, yes. if you're not willing to take the risk to fail, then you're not, uh, then you're probably not taking enough risk. Exactly. Once again, Robert Kiyosaka, the Rich Dad Radio Show. The good news and bad news about money. We're talking to Angie's, Angie Hicks, and we're talking about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And our guest today is Angie Hicks. She is a co-founder of Angie's List. It's here on television all the time. She's inspiring me. She's reminding me of some of the hard times we've had, but why it was important to keep going. How do you keep going to the darkest of times? And Kim, why don't you tell them about how you had $2 a week just to survive at one time? Well, I mean, it's just like Angie's saying, that, you know, you have your, your tough times, you have your dark times. And um, as we were building our business, um, sometimes, Robert, you were off traveling and teaching, and I was back in San Diego and with the business. And there was times, and one time specifically, I had about $2. I had $2, and it had to last me five days. <laughs> And somehow I had to eat, and thank God there was the taco stand down the street, and they had cheese quesadillas, and it was like 89 cents for a cheese quesadilla, and that's what I lived on. And, and you know what? And, and, and because Andy had talked about this, too, sometimes those dark times, that was one of the times where I went, maybe it's time I go, just go get a job. And so very quickly, I, I saw this write-up in the, art, in the paper, this photographer, because I love photography, and I read this article. I'm like, I know I can, I can bring him exactly what he needs. I'm going to go talk to him. He's, he, he needs me. And I went down there, and I sold myself, and he's like, I need you. And I'm like, yes, yay. He goes, but I have no money. Can you work for free? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> As I said, big difference between classroom entrepreneur programs and real-life yeah. entrepreneur programs. But that was also that defining moment, too, that you talked about, Angie, where I, I recommitted to the business. I went, no, this is a right. sign. Get back to work. So Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about something very important for most entrepreneurs, especially if they're sitting at 9 to 5. I don't have any money. I mean, did you yeah. have tons of money? And if you didn't, then how did you raise money? And then how did you go public? So yeah. capital is yeah. always a very important subject. Yes. Right. I think in kind of understanding how much money you need and when you need it is incredibly important for an entrepreneur because you want to have the, you want to, you want to go into that process not feeling uh, desperate. You know, so we raised, you know, when we first started the business, we raised about $50,000 to last us the first year from, you know, kind of friends of, friends of bills effectively. Uh, and I remember going in and being introduced to one of the investors who gave us $10,000 and, you know, and, and so, you know, Bill's like teeing me up like, hey, you know, going to go sell them, make them feel confident. And, you know, as we ended the conversation, he looked at Bill and he was like, good luck. I've already written this off. <laughs> Was that ten dollars or ten thousand? Ten thousand. Like, obviously, maybe I need to work on my pitch. Um, <laughs> but I think you know, kind of making sure that you you know you know who you're raising money from, and you and you value them, and kind of what they bring to the to the team. Because I think 
you know, in the early days, those investors have a, a very loud voice in your what you're doing and how you're doing things. So, kind of making sure you're you're particular about who you're bringing into the mix is yes. is uh, is a smart thing to do because they can bring a lot of insight. I mean, our early investors. I mean, we would meet once a month uh, for a board meeting. And, you know, they gave, you know, back to the kind of having good people around you. I mean, that was an important part of the process for me is kind of knowing those people and knowing I was learning from those smart people uh, is is great. And then, you know, we ended up developing, you know, kind of raising money just as we, you know, kind of just in time but not too late kind of thing. Uh, and we, you know, we had a really good angel investor that supported the business for a long time. How so much How much did the angel chip in? Um, oh, you know, millions over the over you know, kind of the course of a you know probably a decade or so. And that's then, not an we angel. That's we God. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't end up we didn't end up picking up venture capital until you know 2008. And it was actually we kind of came on the radar of you know the bigger venture capital firms, and they you know and you know and kind of being in Indiana that was a little unusual. So we got you know we ended up taking investment from a. A firm out of San Francisco. So they came. Uh, so they came to they you. Came, they came. And they found came knocking us. at your door. Yeah, and it was like it was, you know, and it was at a time where we could have, you know, because of the way the business worked, it was really about how fast we wanted to grow, you know, as to whether we needed to burn capital in that scenario, and it was an opportunity for us to grow faster. Uh, but also, uh, you know, but we were also in a position that we could say yes or no, uh, so and me. which which allowed us to be more selective as to who we picked. Uh, and uh, and ended up bringing on a great partner. So what's the difference between an angel investor, friends and family, friends and family, angel, and then venture capitalists? What's your distinction between the three? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so I mean, like friends and family is literally like I'm going to get some money for my Aunt Susie and <laughs> – you know, you know, angel <laughs> investors are usually, you know, I would classify them as the folks that, you know, that have experience investing in smaller companies uh, and are bringing insight into the organization, can help you kind of bring the right players to the table. It can be especially helpful in helping you recruit, for example. Uh, and then, you know, and then, you know, then you graduate to venture capital from there. What is venture capital versus an angel? They- yeah, I mean, a lot of times an angel's investing their personal money and in a venture capital firm is a, is a, is a firm. Like private equity guys. Private equity firm, exactly. Is, are there risks involved with venture capital? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, from both sides of the story, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, you want to make sure that you've got a venture firm that you know that that, that aligns with the team as to kind of where the business is going, uh, and that's going to be a good partner. I mean, that's where you know, kind of having a West Coast venture firm was incredibly insightful. I mean, I used to, I used to say like, hey, we. We get to have the advantages of being in California without the distractions of being in California. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, one of the goals of many entrepreneurs is to take their startup and take it public on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange and stuff like that. So uh, I've taken three public now. And it's something I wouldn't do again, but I was worth the experience. So why did you go public and what's, what's been your experience of it? You know, for us, I mean, it was an opportunity to raise additional capital for the business to be able to continue to expand and grow and grow at a faster pace. I guess for me, I viewed it as a financing kind of opportunity. I mean, I know that, you know, for many, it's it's one of those, you know, culminating moments in the business, uh, you know, but, you know, it, you know, for many ways, it's like it changes the way the company operates, especially the finance team. It changes their world a lot. But, you know, as far as what we wanted to accomplish and what we were tackling, you know, it's kind of it was an event. It passed, and we were back to we were back to kind of growing. We were back to growing the business and focusing on making 
our business is relevant and uh, enticing to both consumers and service companies. So what did you learn by going public? Or you know, what would going... you caution somebody on? Oh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, you certainly, you're certainly going to open yourselves up to just, you know, it's, it's a lot more rigor around reporting and things like that. You know, if, if you've had venture funding kind of leading into it, you've probably gotten used to that. I mean, I think that's one thing that we learned as an organization early on. And one of the advantages we had by being so old, old in quotations, the business was old when we went public, right? You know, we were we had been around for uh, we had been around for 15 years or so before we went public. Um, you know, so we had more of that rigor. You know, I see. You know, when you see companies that are a year or two years old or three years old that are going through that process, I mean, there's it, it's a it's a much bigger learning curve for them as far as kind of getting that structure put in place. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki of the Vegetarian Radio Show. Our guest today is Angie Hicks. She's a co-founder and current CMO of Angie's List. And she's talking about what it takes to go from startup, from college student to startup, to growing business, going back to Harvard, to going to angel funding, venture capital, and going public. So for all of you who are desire to be entrepreneurs or dream of it and you think it's just one day you wake up and you're public, we have news for you today. So anyway, I want to uh, ask Kim any questions for well, Angie. Well, I, I, I want to just emphasize one point, and then I do have a question. So there was one point you mentioned, An Angie, when uh, you talked about when you were raising money from these were like angel investors and some of the investors you were raising money from. One of the criteria was that they were smart people and they were business knowledge, and you would learn from them, which I just want to reiterate that point because I think it's very important to our listeners. Sometimes they think, I'm just going to raise money and take people's money, and, and I'll just do my own thing, or I'll just, you know, I'm smart enough. Enough, but and buy you, a new car. Yeah, but you, I, I think that was so smart that you raised money from people, accepted money from people who became mentors for you. You want to, you know, they become such a, an important part of your organization that you want to make sure that you've got a good fit. Uh, and I think sometimes people jump to an opportunity to take money without without evaluating yes. that side of things. and. And that can get kind of that can be challenging down the road. You know, you might have different philosophies on where the business should go and things like that. That you, you know, you want to be able to make sure you have a good relationship that you can be able to work those things out uh, and come out with what's best for the business. Absolutely. So then, let's move forward. Now you're um, now you're a public company and you're doing really well. And Barry Diller comes knocking at your door, and Barry Diller says, "I'm going to I'll offer you. I think it was like half a billion dollars for your business." And you said, "No." How come? Sure. I mean, our, you know, you know, as a, as a public company, we always have to be open to value creating opportunities, but it was also at a time when we were in the process of laying out our profitable growth plan. Uh, and we wanted to be able to lay that out for folks to be able to see what the opportunities were. Uh, and we've since done that, and we're, we're in the process of executing on that, executing on that plan. So what, the money wasn't that important from Barry Diller then? You know, for us, we want to make sure we're doing what's right for the, the shareholders Amen. and for the business. And, and we that's... wanted to make sure that we were, uh, you know, kind of showing all options, and that's what we were in the process of doing. And, and, and that's, that's really what I want to get across to people is that there is a fiduciary, moral, and legal, and ethical responsibility to being where you are today. And I think a lot of people forget that. I don't, I mean, a lot of people today are using an IPO, initial public offering, to exit not to stay there and grow the company. So you had a better growth plan, which is a true entrepreneur. So um, do you have any tips today for, let's say, a 22-year-old aspiring entrepreneur or a small 
entrepreneur, small business owner who wants to grow? Any tips for them today? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is, you know, kind of think about a business that's going to be, uh, that's going to resonate and really solving a problem, which is, you know, one of your key points as well. Uh, you know, I mean, our, our idea, we actually had an idea that was already being operated by another company in Indianapolis, a little business in Indianapolis that had been around for 20 years. And we saw an opportunity to take that and make it a much larger scale. I mean, you know, helping, helping people find great plumbers is not some, you know, kind of crazy wild new idea, you know, but it's a very important, simple thing that makes people's lives easier. And finding that information was very difficult for consumers. And that's, and that's our approach. So finding a, finding a business model that a business that, that can answer that question, do consumers care? Do service companies care? That's an important element of it, you know, and then, you know, staying relevant with them. I mean, you know, I think Angie's list is a perfect example. I mean, a business has been around for 20 years. I mean, we are continually, you know, kind of uh, reinventing ourselves and staying relevant with uh, with with our customers, and I think, you know, our recent rollout of our freemium, you know, membership model, where we have a free offering and then premium tiers on top of that, um, you know, is an example of us, you know, responding to, you know, kind of how millennial homeowners are viewing businesses, uh, you know, who can help them find help around the home, and that was an important part for us as well. So. You know, don't be afraid to don't be afraid to question the way things have always been done. So obviously, you're doing a lot of things right, and I really am so impressed on how you do keep reinventing yourself, starting from door to door to going to different cities to starting with a little website. Then you get very successful, and now you still online have to reinvent yourself because you have other markets out there. You have a lot of competition. I just I am so impressed, and I just really want to congratulate you on the reinvention and all the success. So, Angela, we, we could keep Thank going you. for hours. This is one of my favorite subjects. But anyway, I want to thank you and congratulate you and more really, really say thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Also, especially with this program with Angie's List, if you're a budding entrepreneur, I would listen to this program two, three, four, five times because then you'll pick up little hints because she gave you just a litany, a whole checklist of what you go through to go from startup or from student to a public company. And each one is a growth phase. So please listen to this program again with Angie and discuss it with your friends. And now we're going to Ask Robert, and you can submit your questions to Ask Robert at richdadradio.com. So what's the first question, Melissa? Our first question today comes from Mike in Reno, favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He says, Robert, what's your advice for a new entrepreneur who isn't supported in my efforts by my family and friends? Well, let me just say this. If you can't handle your family and friends, I don't know if you have what it takes. Second thing is this. I mean, if that's your biggest obstacle, you have, I mean, you should be an employee. And not everybody should be an entrepreneur. I should really be clear on that because if that's a problem to you, you have no idea what's coming down the road. Right, Kim? Yeah. And, you know, again, I'm going to reiterate, you know, listen to this program again, because Angie talked a lot about this, that if you're not if you're not around supportive, like minded people and she even her investors, people that put money into her into her company became her mentors and her teachers. So your job, Mike, is to find people that will support what you want to do, given it's a good idea and surround yourself with people. Don't don't focus on who's not supporting you. Go find people that will support and will give you some advice and will mentor you. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Robert in Hungary. Favorite book, Rich Dad Guide to Investing. 
He says, in some of your radio shows, for example, with Mr. L. Arian, you mentioned that up to 30% of your savings should be kept in cash in times of crisis or when cash is king, while in others you declare that savers are losers. You should use almost all of your money to create debt and produce assets. Could you further explain this contradiction and what to do when the next big crisis hits? Uh, that's a great question, but I didn't say keep 30% of your money in cash. I never say that. That was Muhammad El Arian's position. Remember, everybody's got a point of view, and everybody's point of view is dependent upon their abilities to do certain things. So since I'm fairly confident with this Angie's List program, she can raise capital. So if you can't raise capital, save money. But I'm fairly confident I can raise money, making money raising capital. I've done it so many times. I've gone through the hard times. So I don't really need cash. I, 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 I like to move my cash as fast as possible into income-producing assets. Now, if you have no skill, like that last guy who called in who can't sell his mom and dad, keep cash. Right, Kim? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we talk about the three sides of the coin, and that's what we do at the Rich Dad Radio Show, is we give you different points of view so you can make your own decision. Now, you look at Alarian. I mean, he's he's a stock and bonds guy. That's what he is, No, right? he's a bonds guy. He's Big difference bonds. between stocks. Okay. But he's paper assets. And, uh, if, and I've heard many people say, if you're only in paper assets, that this might be a time to keep cash. We're in real estate, and we're going to keep doing real estate. So you got to take all of these different points of view and make your own decision. And I'll tell you what Warren Buffett said in 2010. He says, get out of cash and go into an asset. In other words, get out of holding cash. And I don't think people understand the reasons we say that. So if you understand the reasons, the reason we say that is because right now interest rates are sub-zero. Why would you hold cash? I mean, they're printing money so fast they're trying to give it away, and you're trying to hold on to cash? So my point here is, is financial education is understand the reasons people say something. You know, Muhammad Al-Aryan is a man I respect tremendously, a very smart man, but he's a bond guy. Bond guys are debt guys. I'm not a bond guy. You know, Buffett is a stock guy, and Buffett said get out of cash in 2010 and get into assets. Right now it's 2016. I don't want to hold cash. You know, so there's reasons for that. So you can find out your own reasons, and you can decide what you should do is best for you. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Hector in Seattle, Washington. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He says, I'm 25 years old and I'm starting my journey to become rich. You say increasing my financial IQ is important and that I need to learn how to manage the information I get. How do you do that aside from hiring professional advisors? The first, a good question. The first thing I would do is listen to this program with Angie for about 10 times. And you'll get some ideas because repetition is how you'll learn. Look, it's really, you'll, you never have all the answers. That's why to the guy who couldn't sell his mommy, you know, I mean, he's got big problems. He's got emotional problems. He's got courage problems. Those can be overcome. I overcame them. Everybody overcomes them. But the point here is this. If you sit in schools and you go from textbooks, you're not going to learn anything. You've got to go and do something. You can't play golf reading a textbook. There's only one way you can become a golfer is pick up a golf club and start swinging, right, Kim? You gotta, you gotta go do something. Even if you take ten dollars and put it into some investment, ten dollars, at least you're gonna get smarter because you're gonna follow that money. You have so to you do just something. gotta get in the game. Also, I would watch the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> so, next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Giotti in India. Favorite book: Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So how would you enhance your financial knowledge as a student or someone who's just starting out? 
Well, that's a pretty big question. I would watch, I would listen to this program five or six times also. Other thing, you're going to enhance it by going into the unknown. Unknown is where you learn. And most people, especially school teachers, are afraid of the unknown. They like job security. If you want job security more than anything else, you're probably not going to in- increase your financial IQ. So I, I would say this, too, to Jyoti from India, and thank you for, for listening and thank you for the question. Um, your student, you know, I, I would just go to richdad.com <laughs> as a start. You can play the cash flow game for free. You got There's all sorts of free resources. Plus, go get Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Go get Rich Woman. Go get the cash flow quadrant. And then take little tiny steps and start putting some of these things into practice. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're here to increase the financial IQ. That's I would watch Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> no, no, you'll get two points of view out there. You know, you have these school teachers who, in my opinion, most of them are terrified of making mistakes. So they sit there in their little ivory towers in their brain, and they think knowing the right answer is all you need. That's not the way it works in the real world. I'm not saying teachers are bad people. They're just different human beings. So if you're going to learn... Learning takes place in the unknown, and there's lots of unknown out there. Next question. Our next question comes from Jordan in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. She says, I know I need to increase my ability to sell. Can you recommend any programs to learn how to become a better salesperson? Well, I can recommend our friend Blair Singer's book, Sales Dogs, because, again, everybody's a different style. You can tell by my style is very different than Kim. When I sell, I come at it very strong most of the time. But I also started off very afraid, terrified of selling. So I got a job with Xerox, and I knocked on dealers, not eating for a long time. If you don't sell, you don't eat. So most people cannot get a job at Xerox because their pay is too high. But anyway, join a network marketing company. Yeah, you know, I would... The best thing about network marketing is they'll coach you, they'll guide you, stay with them for five years, and you'll grow emotionally, internally. I mean, when I, uh, before I started my own business, I joined a network marketing company and for that exact reason, so that I had to learn how to sell. And you get very creative because you, I was, I had no other income. If I didn't sell, I didn't eat. So you get very creative on how you sell because first of all, when you join a network marketing company, you're going to go to your friends and family and that's really easy and that's going to run out pretty fast because then you've got to go face to face with people you don't know and actually sell them on your products and services. So I, I am, Network marketing was a great step for me. So I was very fortunate to get a job with Xerox, and I spent you know three weeks in there in Leesburg, Virginia, going through sales training. But when sales training was over, I still had to hit the road and go, just as Angie had to do. So I would suggest people listen to Angie's story three, four, five times. You know, just listen to it in the background, things like this. It'll sink into your head. Because the reason I mentioned back to school with Rodney Dangerfield is the reason most school teachers are teachers is they're afraid of what Angie had to do. And I think that is a defining line. And every day I get up and I go, and if you can't do that, keep your daytime job. So I was just in one of my favorite com- countries, South Africa, and we have a group of students out there. And this very attractive, beautiful woman, African woman, stood up and she said, hey, I did what you said. I went and bought a house, da-da-da-da-da. I rented it out, and I'm losing money. What do you have to say? And all I have to say is congratulations. You effed up. The good thing about effing up means you did something. Now you can sit back and reflect on it. So what didn't I know? And as I said, the problem with school is they think knowing the right answer is all you need to know. 
That's not real world. Real world when you step into the dark room and you hope to find a light and turn it on. When you make a mistake, that's God telling you, you effed up. Learn something from this. And if you cannot do that, keep your daytime job. But that's all there is, ladies and gentlemen. Step into the dark room. If you don't want to step in the dark room, sit in your cubicle working 9 to 5. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.